Okay, the last, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about embodied worship in the nature of our physical bodies in worship, um, in the role that ritual and repetition have on us in the way that these things shape us as individuals. Today, we're going to talk about uh, worshiping in the world, in creation, as really the, the stage in which worship happens. And God's creation is something that communicates his presence and knowledge of himself to us. So I call this lesson sacramental worship, receiving from God. And I understand that that word is going to need some explanation down the ro- road. Hang on to it because we'll get there. Those of you who just went through membership seminar, you got this that section a little bit. So I guess you'll get the repeating on that one, but perhaps that'll be a fruitful reflection for you. But we need to think about the physical world is the space in which we worship God. Do you, do you think about it that way? That's what this world is. That's the purpose of this world. Sometimes I think that we look at worship as a spiritual practice that's in fundamental opposition to the physical and material elements of the world. So to worship God is to go to our spiritual hiding place and separate ourselves from the physicality of the world. When in reality, the the very creation of the world was so that people would be in it, on this planet, in worshiping God. So worship is not about a separation from the material and the physical, but it's actually an integration of the physical and material into our spiritual worship of the Lord, because the two things can't really be separated as neatly as we'd like. So last two weeks, we talked about our bodies as a material and immaterial part that are inseparable wholes. The only thing that separates your body from your soul is death, and that's a bad thing. And the resurrection of Christ is working to to bring back together the physical and the spiritual, if you want to think of it that way. Well, in this lesson, we're going to consider the sacred nature of the created world. And by virtue of its origination in God, matter, these created physical things, have an important role in our corporate worship, especially in baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I don't know if you've thought about this that way or not, but baptism and the Lord's Supper are a way that Jesus forces on us physicality in worship. Um, Perhaps Uh, He knows we need this. Obviously, we have them for a variety of reasons, but the presence of baptism in the Lord's Supper is a reminder that this physical world belongs to God, and it's the domain of, of his worship. So we're going to consider these things a little bit more, but we have to start with looking at a sacred world and what that means. But before I go further, any questions on things we've covered over the last couple weeks that relate to this or anything I just said? All right. Sounds good. Well, as I, I think everyone's either tracking or totally confused and, and none of this is making sense. But as, if you have questions as we go, uh, stop me and we can, we can dive into it. I've shortened my word count this week, so I know we'll get all the way through it, even if we have some interjections of questions and comments. So as I've been saying all, all along, and I, I continue to repeat it because I think we need it repeated because it's so ingrained in us, evangelical Christians tend to downplay the sacredness and goodness of the created world. So I think conservative Christians look at the created world and think, 
This thing is destined for destruction. It's going to be obliterated, so there's nothing good in it. Suggestions that God uses the physical world as a means of communication, restoration, spiritual development, and nourishment are met with suspicion most of the time, at least in my experience. When I start talking about these things, I I get a little bit of a response of suspicion. Um, Instead of viewing the physical world or engagement with the physical world in our body as acts of worship, navigating the sacred, this physical environment is sometimes understood as something that's totally secular. So our Christian worship is something sacred, and it's something that we do with our souls, but the physical world in physicality is is secular. So we divide the sacred in the secular in a way that I think is really unhelpful. And this suspicion, I think, owes itself more to Gnostic dualism, that is, matter is bad, spirit is good, so we want to escape from our bodies, than historic Christianity. The Christian faith affirms bodily experience as inseparable from spiritual existence. We've covered this over the last couple weeks, but it's worth repeating here. As one guy says, what one does physically One eats and drinks, engages in sexual life or avoids it, saves one life or gives it up. All are vital elements in one's religious development. So in historic Christianity, the physical created world, because God created it, is embraced. And because Christ is redeeming the physical world, we embrace it. Christ is bringing about its renewal, and he's actually put us in his path to to bring it about as we operate in this world. So we take up Christ's mission to renew the world, and that includes engaging in it in positive ways and integrating the physical world into our corporate worship. Unfortunately, um, Christians sometimes uh, marginalize the created world. So this guy who I quoted earlier explains, evangelical orthodoxy has more and more discounted created things because it features a docetic Jesus. That's one that where Jesus's divinity is really uh, pushed down, um, whose, whose divinity tends to overshadow his humanity and who only brushes against creation for a time um, I I think I mistyped this. He only brushes against creation for a time, but really what his goal is is to take us to heavenly safety, to, to rapture us. If Christ is essentially unconnected with the created world, except to come here and save some souls, then created things can never bring us in touch with divine reality. But the biblical text picture Christ's coming and this creation is something that's intended to bring us into connection with divine reality. And this is because these uh, physical elements of creation are under God's ownership. They're brought together by Christ and they point beyond themselves to God. So the created world serves as a window into divine reality. So to reject it is, is really to close that window in one of the means of revelation that God has given us to see himself, to, to hear him communicate to us. Is this all making sense so far? Okay. The divine affirmation of creation, I've been hinting at this all along, but, but God affirms creation. God communicates himself through the created world. This is a good thing. He makes himself known in creation with the expectation that humanity will respond in worship, giving glory to God. And if we are marginalizing the created world as something secular, then we're playing right into the brokenness of humanity that denies God's self-revelation in creation. So instead of rejecting it, we want to embrace it. 
So Romans 1, 20 to 21 is insightful here. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. So what is our response to creation? Or what should it be? Well, it should be to know God better to glorify God and to show God gratitude. And if you find yourself navigating through the created world, shunning or rejecting these physical elements, then I think you're doing the opposite of what God wants you to do. And as we think about the role of physical elements in worship, we should say that they have an important part. They're intended to help us glorify God and know God and show God gratitude. I, I think, on one level, most Christians are willing to say, yes, mostly. So, I think most Christians are willing to say, yes, I believe I can know God better and commune with God, perhaps, and glorify God as I observe grand things like the Grand Canyon, or the Northern Lights, or Niagara Falls, or the ocean. We, we look at these things that communicate God's greatness, and on that level, we're okay with saying the physical world is good, and it communicates God with, to me, and I can commune with God in a way as I observe these things. But when it comes to the particular, the mundane, the everyday pieces of creation, I think that's where we start to say These things are secular and have nothing to do with God. The daily bread that I eat, the weather, these, you know, mundane sorts of things, God is not in them, I think we try to say. And on one level, this caution is warranted because um, it's easy to fall into this trap of failing to distinguish God from creation. So that's pantheism. We want to distinguish God from his creation because he is separate and other than his creation. Uh, So it's easy for us to say, on these big things that are way bigger than me and way separate from me and not part of my daily life, I can see God there. But we don't want to see God in the things that are very intimate in our lives because we, we want to see the grandeur of God, only we, I think, are somewhat resistant to seeing God in, in the mundane and the everyday because that gets a little bit too close to us. And, and that would be the wrong reason to push away against these things. But the ultimate word of affirmation and indication of God's closeness with his creation is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What is closer than God becoming flesh? God, God is no closer in creation, I don't think, than in the incarnation of Christ. But beyond Jesus' own incarnation is the way that Jesus navigated the physical world. You don't see Jesus running from the created world. He embraces it. Um, he, he uses the created universe to teach spiritual lessons, like in the parables. He brings delight and joy, turning water into wine. He expresses emotion, mourning over the death of a friend. He uses the the created world to nurture and sustain. Think of these multiple feedings. And then to communicate the promises of the kingdom. I am the bread of life. Well, that, that phrase is meaningless if we never eat bread and think about what bread is as a gift from God. Well, these physical elements of the world communicate something about who God is and who we are to be in the world, and we see Jesus navigating the world in this way. 
not, not in a way that shuns the physical world as something secular, but something that integrates it is something sacred. All right, Van der Zee, again, I'm, I'm trying to narrow it to this guy. So if you're looking for a good resource, maybe you'll think of this one. This guy says something helpful. That God created the world means that all material things reflect God's glory and power. The incarnation cements this connection. Christ's eternal and glorified new humanity means that human life is now enmeshed in the life of God. God's story and creation story come together in Christ, making things more than mere bits of matter and opening our eyes to their ultimate transfiguration. Creation, incarnation, and the ultimate recreation of the cosmos reveals a God for whom matter matters and material things open our eyes to the one who is above and beyond all things. So this is a view that says the created physical world is a window into the divine and it's really, really good. I, I don't know that this is the norm um, in modern conservative Christianity to talk about the world this way. And for good reason, as we'll talk about in a minute, but, but maybe an overcreation. Any, any comments or questions so far? I think this is all really clear. And you're probably here now, like, yeah, I agree. This sounds right. And, and I think that's because on an intellectual, like, pos- positioned here level, it just makes sense. Um, but then as we start to talk about what that means for our practice of corporate worship, that's where I think we start to see some dissonance and we push away from the things we actually are affirming right now. Um, <coughs> there is, though, a distorted use of creation. Um, even though creation was intended to draw us in worship to God and to make God known to us, humans in sin distort creation. So despite the goodness of the created world, humans have used elements of creation in distorted ways to diminish the knowledge of God. Uh, We read this in Romans 1 again, claiming to become wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desire of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So humans did not cease to incorporate or understand the physical world as integral to worship. They just began worshiping the wrong things. Uh, So there's been this distortion of creation and bodily engagement in the world. Notice that Paul talks about sexuality as an important part of this. Well, everything down to sexuality all the way up to singing or something like that, if, if you look at the span of these things, all of these created things and ways of being in the world were intended for worship, and broken sinful humanity has distorted it and begun worshiping the wrong thing. Um, so each of these elements serve a function in all of life worship, and they're to be considered as sacred. Um, but this leaves Christians in a challenging position. What do we do when the larger sinful humanity has distorted created elements to worship the wrong God? Is our response to now reject these created elements or sub-creations, things that humans have made out of God's creation, do we now just reject them entirely because they've been used to worship the wrong God? I think the answer is no. Instead, we, we recover them and we restore them to their proper use. So we don't say, because this has been used to worship the wrong God, we, we don't use it to worship our God anymore. 
No, the, the problem is not that element. It's the thing that's being worshipped through the element. And so we need to recover it and point it back in the right direction. Um, if we have time, we'll consider a little bit of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where this sort of thing is happening uh, with meat that has once been offered to a false god. Can Christians eat it and give glory to God? And the quick answer is, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So take these physical elements that were transposed into idol worship and transpose them back into true God worship. Uh, That's the answer. It's not um, shunning or avoiding. It's bringing it back and implementing it in the right way. So in application to our corporate worship, these physical elements, um, those things that are created directly by God in the things that we as sub-creators take and rework, you know, so whether that's architecture or musical instruments or whatever else, these are things that we can employ to worship the true God. So in our corporate worship, the implementation of physical elements, whether a sound system or a particular instrument or a digital copy of the Bible versus a physical copy of the Bible, are not somehow secular, but are instead sacred. And when we draw them into our corporate worship, we represent the larger redeeming work of Christ to bring all of creation into his ordered purpose in directing it towards his glory. So the created world with its manipulation into other things by humans are being gathered and placed as windows into the divine, both as a means of communicating to God and receiving communication from God. So I'll talk about this really briefly here. This should change the way that you respond to the incorporation of the physical world into our gathered worship. And for most of us right now, most of us are really young. So the kinds of things that we use in corporate worship, so if you think of like an acoustic guitar, we just that's normal, that's part of our scene. Uh, but what happens when we turn 60 and there's a different kind of instruments that the young whippersnappers in our churches are trying to include in our corporate worship? Well, we need to frame our mindsets clearly now to say that the involvement of these things, though they might fall outside of our preference mode or comfort zone, are actually representative of humans taking created things and leveraging to wor- them to worship God and to know God better. So therefore, when we see new and different things included in our worship practices, whether that's a PowerPoint or a guitar, we look at that as the redemption of creation in light of Christ's larger redeeming work, working to bring all things together in him, things on heaven and things on earth. So this, this is my argument for why we can use virtually any kind of instrument in our corporate worship. And um, I think there are ways of using instruments that are not helpful because they, they actually hamper communication. Uh, communication needs to be clear and understandable. And I think you can hook a distortion pedal up to something so that a guy now sounds like a robot or something like that, and it's hindering communication. That's not helpful. So there are other factors to consider, um, but we need to remember as we look at the history of the Christian tradition, Our forebearers um, at one time said something like, you should have no musical instruments in a church and you should only chant the Psalms. Well, we're a far cry from that, but why can we be? 
well, this is why, because this is representative of God's larger redeeming work. And I don't think this is a stretch. This is one application of that. Um, But the same is true for our buildings and everything else. We don't reject buildings because the building next to us is being used as an abortion clinic or something like that. We, we harness these things and we leverage them for what they're intended to do, which is to um, point us to worship and to know God. All right, any, any comments or questions there? Okay, this next section is going to bring us into baptism in the Lord's Supper. But I want to talk about creation with a promise. Although all of creation is intended to serve as a declaration of God's glory and should be used in that way, and I I note that it will be whether we use it or not, and I point your attention to Jesus' establishment of the first rock band in uh, Luke 19.40, where if if Jesus' disciples don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. I thought that was a little funny as I was uh, reading that text this morning, but if it's not funny to you, just ignore it. Um, but, but the point is that creation is going to point toward the worship of God, whether we employ it or not, and whether we worship God or not. However, not every element of creation comes with a promise. So all of creation is sacred, but only some of creation comes with promises from God. So, for example, in the Noahic covenant, the physical rainbow is now move a movement from simply the sacred to um, especially sacred, or perhaps we could say sacramental, which I'll explain in a moment, as this physical thing now has a promise attached to it. The same is true with water that comes with a promise, that's baptism, and bread and wine, or in what we use, well, just grape juice, these things now come with a promise, and it sets them over and above the rest of the sacred world. There's something special about them, and that is that they come with a specific promise from God. Now, these physical elements that come with promises aren't limited just to these things. In virtually every covenant, you can find physical things that come with a promise. Uh, But the ones that affect us the most are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So that's what we'll talk about here. Um, and, And what I want to essentially help you see is that these things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, have a particular promise, so they do something for us. They represent particular things. But there's also a meta big picture work that they do, and that is that as we engage in these physical elements, it reprograms us to see the entire creative world, in created world, as something that points to God. So these elements point to a specific promise of God, but the the rest of creation are just echoes of those promises and echoes of the intensity with which these elements point us to God. So that's where we'll head, but... um, Let's look at baptism in the Lord's Supper is the rites of the church. These two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, have been called by many names, and the two that have come to prominence are ordinance and sacraments. So sometimes baptism and the Lord's Supper are referred to as sacraments, sometimes as ordinances. Particularly in the Baptist tradition, we use the term ordinance most of the time. In fact, some, though not all Protestants, moved to dispense with the term sacrament altogether following the Reformation because of its close connection with the Roman Catholic Church. 
Um, but I want to make an argument for why we would use both of them. So with respect to the term ordinance, ordinance emphasizes the responsibility of every Christian to practice these rites as part of the local assembly. So the only other time you've probably heard the word ordinance is with relationship to a city code or something. So there's a, an ordinance that we have to follow that says when we put up our new sign, we have to file a sign permit. And according to the city ordinances, our sign can only be a certain size. So we're going to obey that. Well, that, that brings out both the positive and negative parts of referring to the Lord's Supper and baptism as ordinances. Positively, it emphasizes that in doing them, we're obeying a command of Christ. Negatively, it kind of makes them sound like dry and dusty things that belong in, you know, this thick binder that you'll find at City Hall. Well, we want to avoid the negative connotations and lean into the positive, but I don't think we get rid of the term ordinance simply because there could be something negative associated with that word. Instead, we just try to understand it rightly. And the same is true with this term sacrament. Sacrament is a little bit more difficult to explain because of the developmental history of this word, but the Latin term sacramentum, that's where we get sacrament from, was originally a military term describing the oath of allegiance that a soldier would take. Uh, but then later in the Latin translation of the Bible, the word that we have rendered as mystery was translated sacramentum. Um, so though the term is never used with reference to either baptism or Lord's Supper in the Bible, there's never this verse that says the Lord's Supper is a mystery or baptism is a mystery. Um, they, these things are viewed in one sense as a pledge. And then in the conflation of Bible translations where sacramentum is now attached to things like marriage, which is called a mystery, you can start to see how a full orb sacramental theology develops within the Roman Catholic Church that brings things together that we would think don't fit together. Well, it's through the variated use of this word, such that the Lord's Supper and marriage are now both part of this larger sacramental theology. As I mentioned, some have this dispense with this term altogether, but the reformers themselves, so the, the, the original geniuses, the original greats, whatever OG stands for, these original guys did not actually get rid of this term, even though they were the ones who led the Reformation. They, they continued to use these terms because their goal was actually to reform the church and to hold on to what was good, not to separate from it. Well, they ended up separating from it, but they took all of the good pieces with them when they went. And sacrament, in this language and idea of sacrament, was one of them. So this guy, John Calvin, defined a sacrament as an outward sign by which the Lord seals to our consciences the promises of his goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. And we, in turn, attest our piety toward him in the presence of the Lord and of his angels before men. So even in this definition where, where Calvin talks about sacraments, he's emphasizing what God is doing through the sacraments. Whereas when we use the term ordinance, we're emphasizing what we're doing we're obeying. We're pledging ourselves to God in baptism. We're saying something about the return of Christ. Well, this term sacrament emphasizes what God is doing through them. He's nourishing us. He's communicating his presence to us. He's teaching us and guiding us in sustaining the weakness of our faith. 
So the way that I handle this is that if I am trying to emphasize our duty to obey or what our role is in baptism or the Lord's Supper, I generally will use the term ordinance. But when I want to emphasize what God is doing through baptism in the Lord's Supper, I use the term sacrament. And I think that's a helpful way of trying to figure out um, which term is appropriate. Well, both of them, but they emphasize different things. And um, I think that's <clears throat> a good way forward for us. Now, certainly there are people who will use both of these terms in ways that we don't like. Well, that I don't think means we get rid of the term altogether. We just do the hard work of explaining um, this is what we mean by that. Uh, for, for anyone who would maybe push against this and say, sacrament sounds too Catholic still, I'll just say that they call their Bible the Bible. And we work hard to explain in our Bible, we don't include the Apocrypha. In theirs, they do. So there's a slight difference, but there's a lot that's actually the same when I say Bible and a Catholic says Bible. Well, we just have to work to distinguish these things. Uh, we don't dispense with it altogether. We don't come up with a different term for, for God's word that's something different than the Bible. I mean, we could, but that's just annoying, okay? And I think that's the reality when we're trying to work through other shared terminology with Christian traditions where they would define things a little bit differently. So in our corporate worship, there's a sense that uh, the church is both offering something to God in baptism and the Lord's Supper, and that the church is receiving something from God in baptism in the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and um, we want to bring these things together to say that as we offer and as we receive, both of these things are very relational, communal realities. So the Lord's Supper is not just this dry, dusty ritual that we do. It's a life-giving, relationship-sustaining practice. Um, the same thing with baptism. Any questions up to this point on those things, especially on this terminology piece? Okay. <clears throat> Um, if, if you have questions about this and just don't want to talk about it here, talk to me about it. I'm happy to explain more. And, and when you hear us say something like we, we participate in the sacrament or we receive the sacrament or something, know that this is the way we're talking about it. Um, and I think that probably there's about an equal split in the terms that we use. I generally, I think, just use the word the practices of baptism in the Lord's Supper because it sort of just helps people stop and, and rethink it differently, you know, either. And, and I think it brings both together. Um, but I think both terms are helpful um, as we go forward. So baptism in the Lord's Supper in corporate worship. I want to point out first that they belong in corporate worship. Do you, have you ever thought about that? These are integral parts to our corporate worship, and their absence is really troubling, or a lack of emphasis on these things I think is really troubling. First, their community acts. So baptism in the Lord's Supper as rites of the church, they belong to the gathered assembly, should be received and practiced only in the gathered assembly. While some are convinced that both practices can be carried out in isolation from the gathered body, such that an isolated engagement goes against the very nature of what these practices are. Baptism is the mechanism by which an individual goes from being outside the covenantal community 
to being inside the covenantal community. So it makes no sense to do a baptism at a family reunion separated from the covenantal community. The same take is true with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper in part communicates that the gathered assembly is one body, one bread, one body. Therefore, part of that body, whether it's a small group or a family gathering, should not co-opt the Lord's Supper as a private meal. These are rights of the church and they belong there. I, this is not, um, I, I think, complicated. I think it makes sense. But even within conservative Baptists, there's this idea that baptisms in the Lord's Supper can be private family affairs. Um, I was recently talking to an individual who I greatly respect, who's part of our Baptist world, and he was talking about during the shutdown, lockdown, he and his family did the Lord's Supper together. Well, I'm not quite certain that I want to tell this guy you sinned, but I also want to say, I think that's a misunderstanding of what this is, and I don't think it's the Lord's Supper that you eat. Um, this is sort of the problem in part with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, is they're taking the Lord's Supper in a way that emphasizes the fractured, divided church, not the unified whole church. And even though the circumstances are such that in a lockdown, the church is necessarily fractured and divided, I, I think that doing the Lord's Supper as a family emphasizes that division. And I think the, the lack of it, not taking part of it, reminds us that there's something wrong here and we need to gather with the assembly as soon as possible and celebrate this meal that shows us is one body. So um, we, if someone is baptized at a family reunion and they come to our church, depending on the circumstances, but generally we, we would say that's a valid baptism, but it's irregular. It's, it's weird. We would never commend it. Um, don't do that at your next family reunion with another one of your children. Um, if you have ever taken the Lord's Supper in your small group or with your family or something, I wouldn't say you've sinned, but I'd say you're also not doing the Lord's Supper. You're doing a cheap imitation of it. And if you actually pause and reflect on it for very long, you'll start to see that what you just did is antithetical to why we have the Lord's Supper. Uh, these things belong in corporate worship. They, they belong there. And they belong there as recurring acts. And so I think they need to be practiced as frequently as possible in the gathered assembly. Um, so baptism in the Lord's Supper should be regularly included in our corporate worship gatherings um, as nurturing um, things for our faith. Um, but by virtue of what they are, baptism in the Lord's Supper don't always get equal stage time. So baptism gets less stage time than the Lord's Supper by virtue of what it is. So by analogy, participating in the Lord's Supper, and, and I'll just comment here, I'll bring this up again. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, I would hope, I want us to move away from saying we're observing the Lord's Supper as if it's something separate in distance that we're watching. I think participating in the Lord's Supper is better language. Uh, I've, I think it's hard to get to change our vocabulary sometime. Back in the day, observing included participation. Um, I think if you look at older definitions of observing, but that's not so now. So participating in the Lord's Supper by analogy is like mowing the lawn. You get to plan when you're going to mow the lawn. I mow the lawn every Monday, or if, you know, someone's coming over and we've had a big rain, I'll, I'll mow the lawn again. But generally, I can schedule when I'm going to mow the lawn. You can schedule when you're going to do the Lord's Supper, and you can do it, because all you need are Christians gathered to do the Lord's Supper. 
Well, baptism, by analogy, is like shoveling snow. You don't get to predict when the snow is coming, but when it snows, you get out and shovel. When people come to faith, you baptize them. And so you can't say, by principle, we're going to have a baptism every Sunday in our church. Well, you can't manufacture that. Um, But the Lord's Supper, you can schedule and put in place. Um, So we, we have control over that. And as I mentioned, I think last week, we're going to be moving to scheduling the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Uh, we, we have the privilege and opportunity to do this as a gathered assembly. We're going to wait to do that until after I've done two more lessons on the Lord's Supper because I want to help you understand why we would do that. So in one of them, I want to have a section that where I answer some of the objections to a weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. But I also want to demonstrate to you that the Lord's Supper is so multifaceted that we could virtually every week of the year emphasize a different piece of the Lord's Supper and be refreshed and renewed and never fall into dry, dusty, boring routine. Um, I, I was thinking about this the other day, and I think it would be great to like put together 52 reflections on the Lord's Supper. Because, and you could very, very easily. Um, these things are like uh, pictures where that extend beyond all of us. You know, we can all like enjoy a picture in different facets of it in, in everyday look at that thing. Well, the Lord's Supper is a picture as well. So we'll get into that more in the coming weeks. Um, any, any questions before I pause with my conclusion? here. Okay. Um, A foundational understanding of the goodness of created physical elements, both those things created directly by God and those things manipulated by human sub-creators. And what I mean by that is where we take wood and we make buildings or things like that, or or we take this created thing called sound that's really mysterious and now we can pipe it through a speaker and reach more people. That's what I mean by these things manipulated by human sub-creators. This, this understanding of these things is fundamentally good, provides fruitful reflection and considerations for the incorporation of these elements into corporate worship as a, partic- or as a participation of Christ's redemption of the entire cosmos. Such reflection changes the way that we look at the use of an organ or of a drum in corporate, in, in corporate worship, and it changes it from thinking it as distasteful to delightful. And I think as we expand our palettes, we can enjoy um, when Janice puts the organ setting on the piano, as she did a few weeks ago during the Lord's Supper. I thought that was delightful. Well, I think college me would have thought, that's old and stuffy. Get that out of here. Well, that, that was sort of based on like a wrong way of thinking. And as we grow in this, I think we can find more delight than distaste in our corporate worship. Furthermore, a greater appreciation for the physical elements that come with a promise, baptism and the Lord's Supper, paves the way for deeper communion with God, both in participation in these two rites of the church and in reframing the rest of the created world as echoes of these two practices. So, so when you have the Lord's Supper here, when, when you gather as a family around a table, you have an echo of the Lord's Supper there. Um, when, when you, on your way to work, pick up a donut, and you eat that sweet, sweet bread, that should draw your mind to Jesus, the bread of life. And this is a different way of engaging in the world, but it it requires more thought, but it changes your mode of existence from consumer to prayerful and worshipful. 
And this takes work and practice, and it's hard, but I think it, this isn't some sort of like silly thing to do. It's, this is spiritually enriching. And if you can start to translate everything you engage with in this world as an echo of, of these gifts from God, I think you're going to be a more delight, delighted and delightful Christian. So then over the next three weeks, we'll consider baptism and the Lord's Supper in more depth as we try to recover these practices for corporate worship.